Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Welcome everyone to this next ACE podcast. We have a very interesting topic today. My name is Vin Tang Precha. I'm the editor in chief of Endocrine Practice and the host of today's podcast. Our topic is the pros and cons of non-nutritive or artificial sweeteners. And we have two experts here today who will be joining us on our podcast. I'd first like to introduce Dr. Alna Christofides and Dr. Carl Nadalski. Dr. Christofides is on the con side and Dr. Nadalski is on the pro side. And maybe what we'll do first and have both of our experts introduce themselves and maybe start us off with your position. And after we will start the debate. So Dr. Christofides, could you please introduce yourself and tell us why you believe that artificial sweeteners might not be the best option for our patients? Thank you, Vin. Yeah, this is Elena Christofides. And since I'm the only female on this particular podcast, it won't be hard to tell the difference between when I'm speaking and when anybody else is speaking. So thank you for this opportunity. I think this is a topic that is going to become even more important as we move towards greater solutions for the problem of excess weight and adiposity in this country. And, you know, with the greater medications and newer medications out, there's a lot of conversation about what can or can't be done from a lifestyle perspective to assist our patients in getting to those goals. So my position is against non-nutritive sweeteners. And I came to that conclusion kind of slowly, actually, over the last five to 10 years working in obesity, understanding that thermodynamics are not everything that we want them to be in the laws of medicine. So my position is against for several reasons. One, the laws of thermodynamics do work in metabolism and endocrinology, but we don't know all the variables. And so that's the most common point that people make about using non-nutritive sweeteners is simply calories in, calories out, which I think is pretty well described at this point as not actually being what we think it is. It's not as relevant or as important or as meaningful as a single point of conversation about diet. I don't think that it is necessarily a bad place to start, but I don't think that thermodynamics and calories are helpful in this conversation, primarily because the studies that I've reviewed for my article show that people are capable of making up that thermodynamic deficit later in the day when allowed to freely eat after consuming non-nutritive sweeteners. And that is the first point where it breaks down the laws of calories and calories out. The second point is that if you can only deprive yourself so long before those calorie deficits start to add up and that runs right into satiety. So in the studies that I reviewed in my article, I found that satiety is greatly affected by the use of non-nutritive sweeteners, both in the acute sense as well as the chronic consumption perspective. So if you are blunted in your satiety or satisfaction with your food intake, when you are consuming non-nutritive sweeteners, either as a one-off or on a chronic daily, even you know annual perpetual basis, then you effectively ask the person, the consumer to perpetually 
actually force themselves into a state of deprivation in order to be satisfied with that calorie deficit. And that's just not sustainable. And then thirdly, sort of a short form, the problem with the brain development is also, in terms of the satiety issue, also seems to be manifested in the gut. You know, we are all very conscientious about the incretin class of hormones and how important they are with weight maintenance and glucose metabolism and the ability of the gut and the brain to communicate with each other regarding nutrition and what I call nutrient movement, not calorie movement, but nutrient movement. And in effect, the non-nutritive sweetener studies have shown that there is a blunting of that incretin effect when you're using chronic non-nutritive sweeteners and that you ultimately will not get the same metabolic benefit of your own endogenous incretin hormone physiology when using non-nutritive sweeteners. And in part, that's due to alterations of neurotransmitter movement, as well as pathologic gut bacteria that are promoted through the use of non-nutritive sweeteners. So this constellation of effects is interesting because it has been shown in animal models as well as human data and vivo as well as fast MRI analysis of brain physiology. But most concerning, there seems to be a discrepancy between people who are healthy weight to begin with and people who are an unhealthy weight or people who have a predisposition to obesity. So I think we have to be very careful about interpreting studies that are done in healthy weight individuals because they seem to not have the same negative response to the non-nutritive sweeteners. So I think this is also a situation where the applicability of our studies is not what it would would like them to be. And that's not uncommon in medicine, but we need to be cognizant of that bias in our data that healthy weight individuals who do not chronically consume non-nutritive sweeteners are perhaps the least useful cohort to study in this group. And then you take that one step further into the animal models. They're great for like proof of concept, but they're not great for the thermodynamic models because they're just, they're completely in controlled circumstances, whereas humans are not. So ultimately, I think there's a, a multiplicity of rational reasons to believe that non-nutritive sweeteners are not helpful in managing our disease of excess adiposity. Thank you very much, Dr. Chrisfides, for describing your position. And also want to remind the audience that these fantastic reviews are in this month's endocrine practice in the October issue. So people should take a look at those. Dr. Nadolsky, what do you say? What is your position that's counter Dr. Christofides? All right. Well, thanks, guys. I'll try to give a little bit of background in my position in addition to trying to go backwards and address some of her points. Certainly there's some overlap in where we probably agree as opposed to disagree. So historically, non-nutritive sweeteners, artificial sweeteners, of which we have several varieties, by the way, different chemical structures that provide sweetness without the calories, go into her discussion on thermodynamics. I mean, they've been used really essentially to provide the sweet taste that humans desire, the palatability, mostly for sweetened beverages. And that's where I'll do a lot of my focus, really, because I think that's part of where the problem is. And so the whole point of them is to change that energy balance, the thermodynamics to reduce the energy intake if there is an excess energy intake from sugars that are unnecessary. So for example, sugar-sweetened beverages, soda juice, pop, sweet tea, that sort of thing. We know that those drinks especially add 
unnecessary calories, overwhelm our energy balance regulation system, and increase adiposity and adiposity-based diseases, obesity, dysglycemic diseases, et cetera. And so to her point of the concern of thermodynamics, yeah, if we look purely at the calories and the energy in and out, replacing sugary beverages with non-caloric, non-energy beverages should be good. And we do know that inpatient ward trials and all these things, that energy balance, it does come down to that. We know that for sure. Now, to her point, does it somehow in a free living person increase desires later? Well, that goes into some of those biological plausibility studies that she talked about. We know observational data correlate with non-nutritive sweetener consumption and obesity and adiposity-based disease like type 2 diabetes. And then the preclinical data that uh, she talked about uh, has come up with a variety of mechanisms like the gut microbiome and the incretins and the changes in the functional MRI. So maybe some people do have some increased hunger, appetite, et cetera, uh, with different artificial sweeteners. But what I really focus on is the interventional trial data. So when people with obesity, diabetes, or healthy weight, as she mentioned, exchange their high caloric load from sugary sweetened beverages specifically to diet beverages of whatever variety. And you can refer to the papers to dig into the details on which artificial sweeteners compared to which have better benefit. In all the interventional trials, there is a benefit. They lead to weight loss and they have better glycemic outcomes. And so that's just kind of when the rubber hits the road, that's my basic argument is that all the trials done when you replace sugary beverages with non-caloric alternative artificial sweeteners, you lose weight and have improved cardiometabolic benefits. So that's really kind of the bottom line. Now we do need to treat everyone as individuals. If someone says, oh, when I drink a diet drink, I get hungry later. Well, then that's an individual issue and we need to address that. And we probably should not tell people who already don't drink sugary beverages to go and start drinking diet beverages for no reason. That's not necessarily helpful. And if there is any harm at all from what she's talking about, then that would be inappropriate. But on the other hand, I also wouldn't sweat it too much. So I desperately plead with people to replace their sugary drinks with diet versions of that. Now, when we go beyond that, we do have plenty of trials, again, in diabetes, using CGM data, et cetera, that show they don't raise sugars like people think. If you lose weight and improve your cardiometabolic outcomes, and you have an otherwise really high quality diet, and people say, oh, but what about the gut microbiome? Well, what we care about are the outcomes. That's why the interventional data are what, are what I care about. And then my other little point in this whole thing is using the data from meal replacement shakes, essentially. So some of the best data we have for dietary lifestyle intervention for obesity and diabetes is using meal replacement shakes to replace food. Now, this isn't getting into the sugary sweetened beverage alternative concept, but it does show that these are all artificially sweetened drinks. They are protein drinks that are artificially sweetened with a variety of the different artificial sweeteners we're talking about. And they have the most robust high level data to lose weight and put diabetes into remission, in fact, and they use artificial sweeteners. So 
I think that's pretty good interventional data itself, even though it's not exactly replacing sugary drinks, but it's replacing any type of calories is what those are doing. And then just some other data like in the weight control registry, those who are better weight loss maintainers correlate to using artificial sweeteners instead of sugary drinks. And so you can kind of see where we may overlap in, well, let's not just tell everyone who doesn't drink sugary drinks to start drinking diet beverages. That's not it. I'll tell you my bias is that I certainly enjoy artificial sweetened beverages, but I have an otherwise high quality diet and maintain a low body fat. As she said, that it may not matter for me and, and people like me, um, but if people with obesity, diabetes, drink sugary drinks, they should replace them with artificially sweet beverages, maybe preferably water. And we can agree on that, I'm sure. And we should consider using meal replacement shakes because they have a great robust data set, even though they're artificially sweetened. That's where my article will focus. Thank you, Dr. Nadalski. And his article is also in the October issue of Endocrine Practice. At Recordati Rare Diseases, we are focused on the few. We are committed to therapeutic advances in endocrinology. What about Recordati Rare Diseases? We are one of the most active companies in the field of rare diseases. We are an ambitious and international company. Connect with a Recordati Rare Diseases representative to learn about our diverse portfolio of products, including Isteresa, Signifor LAR, and Signifor. We are looking forward to speaking with you. I'm going to start with a question for Dr. Christofides, and it's probably on the top of all of our audience's mind. And I'll admit I'm a uh, diet soda addict. Uh, full disclosure, I'm at Coca-Cola University, Emory University in Atlanta. So all of us diet soda drinkers think that we're saving all these calories. If you look at our career of drinking diet sodas, we're talking about probably hundreds and thousands of calories we've saved. I mean, so we think we're doing ourselves such a service. So are you saying that not so fast. We may have eaten other calories because we were so deprived of this taste that we're not satisfying with our diet sodas. Is that what you're saying? Thanks, Ben. That's exactly what I'm saying. There was a great trial that I reviewed for my article that looked at very controlled, basically what Carl's saying, it was sweetened beverage breakfast or a meal replacement breakfast. One of being sucrose sweetened and one being non-nutritive sweetener sweetened. And interestingly, and that was a controlled component for breakfast. And then the participants were allowed free living afterwards, right? They were allowed to eat whatever they were going to eat, but they were monitored. So it was not a observational recollection trial. One of the biggest problems with diet trials or or food trials is recollection by the consumer is terrible. We all know food recall diaries are no good. So this was a controlled environment where the calories were monitored and tracked and the meals were tracked. So the consumer did not have to recall what they'd eaten later. So basically when the beverage was used in the morning was a sucrose sweetened beverage, then the total calorie consumption for the rest of the day was whatever the number is so that there was a total, we'll just call that whatever that total was. 
in the group that was given the non-nutritive sweetener beverage for breakfast, they subsequently made up those calories in their subsequent meals for the day. And this was then, therefore, their total calorie consumption was actually the same as the group that had the sucrose sweetened beverage for breakfast. And when they went and looked at the hormonal data, they found that there was actually a blunted incretin response to the caloric meal later in the day in the non-nutritive sweetening using group. So for those of you out in the audience that are not as comfortable with the incretin physiology as maybe Carl and I, the incretin hormone response is what drives post-meal satiety, what drives post-meal insulin, glucagon, and glucose movement. And so when you have a blunted response and that blunted response is persistent, that's what can lead to postprandial hyperglycemia and diabetes. So blunting the incretin response is a bad idea. And so consequently, in the non-nutritive sweetener group, they had a blunted incretin response later in the day. They had a greater caloric intake later in the day, which ultimately led to a uniform calorie consumption as compared to the sucrose sweetened beverage group. And yet they did it with a lowered hormonal response that we know to be associated with positive satiety and weight management. That makes a lot of sense. So perhaps if I substitute my Diet Coke for full calorie Coke, maybe I'll eat less calories later in the day. That's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yes, that you're not fooling yourself because you're free living. You're not in a controlled environment. If you are eating controlled meals and so, for example, if you are an individual who has difficulty with portion control, difficulty with meal planning, difficulty with the volume of your food, and you never consume anything free living other than what you've purchased on a pre-prescribed program, then that calorie deficit may serve you well, but that just doesn't happen day in and day out in any human's life. So that's my point about we're really just kind of deluding ourselves into thinking that we can constantly deprive ourselves with that element by replacing those calories, even in our drinks alone. These were breakfast meals that were shakes, just like Carl's describing in terms of meal replacements. So Carl, you're my doctor. I drink two Diet Cokes a day. I'm going to start drinking instead of Diet Coke, two full (laughs) calorie Cokes a day. Am I going to be okay? I would beg you to read my article and that I guarantee you that would be worse than drinking your Diet Cokes. While what she's talking about, I mean, yeah, that's a legitimate concern. And we know that part of the problem with obesity and the energy balance system is it's so complex and we get into the set points and our biology fights us and it doesn't want us to lose weight. There are examples using the SGLT2 inhibitors where we're urinating out sugar right? We have glucosuria and our body does try to make up for it. Otherwise people would just keep losing weight on those medications, but they don't. So the appetite increases to try to compensate. And this happens in exercise trials, by the way, you hear about how well increasing to a ton of exercise really isn't that great for weight loss per se on average and everyone's different. So when you look at those waterfall plots and you look at a hundred people, they all have like different responses. Some people actually lose weight because they don't have the compensation. Some people maintain weight because they compensate perfectly. Some people even gain weight, hopefully maybe uh, some of its muscle in that case. So in her case, yeah, there's some mechanistic concerns in that specific trial, but the good news is that the huge body of evidence 
is that if you replace the sugary sweetened beverages with the diet versions, you lose weight. Just a couple examples. I mean, and even water. So we all probably suggest that water, unsweetened coffee, tea, et cetera, would be preferred over the artificially sweetened beverages for some of the concerns that she's brought up and you can dig into in, in our papers. But for example, there have been a couple relatively recent randomized controlled trials where people who drink sugary drinks, one specifically was they switched these people to either diet drinks or water, and they both lost significant weight. So first of all, that that happened. And in fact, the people who were switched to the artificially sweetened beverages lost more. And that actually contributed to one of the meta-analyses, not the most recent one, but there was a meta-analysis that even said, well, yeah, it looks like maybe they're even better than switching to water. But again, this goes back to individualizing it. So for me personally, having some diet fizzy drink actually helps my satiety. But again, I don't have obesity or diabetes. And so if someone says, oh boy, I get hungry and I end up making up for it later, well, that's a problem that we address through other means, through other dietary interventions. And while we are free living, we're not just addressing this dietary component. We should be addressing patients holistically, their whole diet, exercise, sleep, and medications, by the way. And so, yeah, and the meal replacement deal she's talking about, I mean, that, like I said, in the biggest trials, Roy Taylor from the UK, those data with meal replacement shakes, putting prediabetes into remission, putting diabetes into remission, we have some of the best data for those and they use artificial sweeteners. And the meta-analyses clearly show that replacing sugary sweet beverages induces weight loss and improved glycemic outcomes for now. <laughs> It sounds like we all agree water is probably the beverage of choice here <laughs> with no controversy. So for the audience and me, we take care of a lot of people with diabetes and we know that the sugar sweetened beverages really spike glucose levels. So maybe I can ask Dr. Chris Fides, I mean, for people who desire sugar beverages, wouldn't it be better to, to replace with artificial sweetened beverages to avoid those spikes? I mean, that seems to be an easy fix, especially focusing mostly on diabetes control. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. So Vin, that is a point that we're all trying to get to, right? We're all ultimately at the end of the day, trying to manage our patients better and give them better advice. So realistically, to be fair in my practice, I don't allow any sweetened or non-sweetened beverages. I mean, they can have water, tea, or coffee. In my practice, my rule is water, tea, or coffee. That's all you're allowed because even a little bit of arsenic isn't good for you. So a lot is bad, but a little bit is still no good. So I understand the point and the rationale behind that. Let's talk about those sugar spikes. Let's talk about, are we short-sighted in that conversation? So by allowing someone to swap out their sugar-sweetened beverages for a non-nutritive sweetener beverage, yeah, we might achieve short-term gains, by not having their sugar spike and on CGM, they're more controlled. But what are we doing long-term? We have to think about the fact that this is a marathon, not a sprint when you're dealing with obesity-related diseases and diabetes. So if I know that using sucralose, for example, in my non-nutritive sweetened beverage increases the risk of the toxic E. coli in the gut, which increases liver inflammatory markers and increases dyslipidemia and hypertension, am I cutting off my nose despite my face? You know, so I, I sure I fix their CGM. GM spike, but I destroy their liver. 
And fatty liver is just as problematic and hypertension is just as problematic as the sugar itself. And I think we could all really agree, actually more important because our type two diabetes patients die of their cardiovascular disease, their inflammation, their stroke risk. They're not dying of a sugar of 300 because they had a, a Coke. So they're dying of that long-term. That is a consequence long-term. So when you look at the gut microbiome changes that happen with non-nutritive sweeteners, and I do want to make a, a quick point that I didn't say earlier. You know, what's interesting is when you look at a study of four different non-nutritive sweeteners in persons with overweight or obesity, the changes in weight were dependent on which non-nutritive sweetener they used that was not uniform across the board. So I don't disagree that there may be some non-nutritive sweeteners that are more appropriate than others. I just don't know that we know what those are because we're not looking at the true analysis across the board globally. Are we looking at gut microbiome? Are we looking at incretin physiology? Are we looking at liver inflammatory markers? And are we looking at it globally for someone with overweight or obesity to truly understand is there an optimal one? And is there one that doesn't, you know, give us short-term gains for long-term consequences? That's kind of also one of my points in the article is, I don't know that we know actually the differences between them and do they matter or not. But back to your question, in my practice, no, I don't allow any of those. And in fact, I would rather somebody have a greater protein fat content of their meal to blunt the sugar spike that happens with sucrose, if they're gonna do, for instance, a meal replacement beverage, I would rather they make their own protein shake and add a little bit of a regular sugar in there because if you have enough protein and fat in that meal replacement shake that you've made, you're gonna blunt that sugar response. And we see that routinely in CGM data. So I don't need to cheat with a non-nutritive sweetener. I can give them sucrose or honey or maple syrup or whatever is their sugar of choice in a smaller quantity that is then blunted by the content of the protein and the fat. And then I'm happy, the patient's happy, and they're getting a good protein fat composition in their macronutrients as well without sacrificing their gut microbiome. Thanks for the answer. That raises one of my questions I had for Carl. So in his article, he did touch on that we're lumping all these chemicals into one category and there must be some artificial sweeteners that are better than others, or maybe some quote unquote natural sweeteners. Carl, can you, since you are more of a fan of artificial sweeteners or Maybe that's too strong of a word, but are there better <laughs> artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners that you would recommend? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, she noted the one trial, which was from 2019, where they did compare the four different ones. And obviously, well, what they compared it to was sucrose. And the group that got sucrose gained the most weight. Um, and ironically, because she was talking about sucralose, but sucralose was the one who that group lost the most weight. So this kind of goes to the people online. This happens all the time, right? Someone says, hey, my patient with a BMI of 42 and, and type 2 diabetes used to drink lots of soda pop and they switched to diet. They lost 68 pounds and put their diabetes in remission. Then someone goes, oh, but their microbiome. What about their microbiome? <laughs> well, I don't care about their microbiome from the artificial sweeteners per se, right? We know it's complex and there's some interesting stuff and it plays a huge role more than we used to think. 
but there are other more important aspects of the diet to the microbiome anyways, probably. And it's like, well, look, I don't care about your microbiome. If you lost weight, put your diabetes in remission. That's actually good for your fatty liver, good for your lipids, and ultimately good for your overall cardiometabolic risk. So that's my response to that. And there have been lots of like glycemic studies on these different artificial sweeteners. And like I said, all of them, including meta-analyses, basically show better glycemic control, both in the short term and the long term, pretty much with all of them. There's a 2018 meta-analysis looking at aspartame, saccharin, stevia, and sucralose, and it didn't really matter. Uh, there was no increase in blood glucose. It didn't differ by type, and there was even less of an impact, less of an impact for those who are older, higher BMI, type 2 diabetes. And so there's that. And even more recent meta-analysis looking at all the different prandial blood glucose trials and postprandial insulin trials, again, looking at aspartame, saccharin, stevia, sucralose, it still didn't benefit by type. And in fact, there was a trend for a benefit in those who had type 2 diabetes specifically. There have been trials before that suggested maybe stevia, that the natural one has maybe the best benefit, but that's hard to, that's starting to split hairs that maybe don't matter that much unless you're putting it into your coffee and you want to figure out which one you want. As far as like produced beverages, if you want a, a sweet beverage and, and you're looking for different versions that some might be flavored with aspartame, some might be flavored with sucralose, some these days might be flavored with stevia. And again, this kind of comes back to an individualization. I, you know, I say, let's figure out which one works best for you. But first of all, you got to tolerate it. Some people don't even tolerate diet beverages. That's where I run into the most issues. They say, oh, I, I just can't, it gives me a headache. And I say, well, okay, well, that's, we're not going to do that then. That's ob obviously, right? And I can't mandate my patients do anything. I can give recommendations. So Dr. Christophe says she doesn't allow them to have anything other than water, coffee, tea. I don't have that luxury. I don't know how she's doing that, but I give strong desired recommendations and see where we go. So I guess that's my point on that. Uh, that was a good point. I mean, so Dr. Christophe, I mean, I get your point that we don't want to put stuff in our bodies that we don't really know the long-term effects, but there's got to be some natural sweeteners. I mean, like stevia or monk fruit or what are these other natural things? I mean, those have got to be okay, right? <laughs> well, maybe. So that's obviously maybe. so part of the problem. So let me get to the stevia question. Interestingly, you're right. Consumers and medical practitioners as a whole generally want to believe that stevia is okay because it's quote unquote natural. It's a plant derivative. But you know, what's really fascinating about stevia is that the compound, the, the uh, sweetness of the various compounds depend on what part of the plant is used. And fascinatingly, it does not have a globally accepted legal status. There are portions of the plant or chemicals of the plant that are not allowed in some countries they are banned in other countries and not used or other parts are used instead. So I find stevia to be the most ridiculously complicated non-nutritive sweetener out there because it's unclear to me why we have such different legal regulations about them. I think it's France that bans it, but then the U.S. doesn't consider it GRAS by the FDA, but it's still out there. I don't know. It's very confusing. So I don't know. I think the jury is out on that because it's just so non-uniform on stevia. But and a nod to, to Carl, I'm going to give you one maybe on this uh, one. One maybe I'll give you. There is a new non-nutritive sweetener called allulose out there. And it is a chemical manufacturer derivative, a plant derivative that is isolated and then manufactured. 
And it's unclear, but it may actually be the most neutral metabolically. At least the early data suggests that it's a little bit neutral at this point. So again, kind of my point about this is this is a long-term thing. Even long-term data matters. We're not going to do a 10-year trial on these. I get it. But there are definitely biomarkers and metabolic markers we can use to sort of identify what looks to be better or, or not so great. So Stevia, I'm kind of actually a little more sort of gray on because of its legal status seems to be so weird that that just makes me question what's going on. But allulose, maybe, I'll give you that one. Maybe allulose is actually going to be the non-nutritive sweetener that breaks my opinion. So far, that's uh, maybe. (laughs) I'll grant you that. You know, I'd also like to reiterate the whole natural versus artificial thing. We have lots of medicines in our realm that we talk about a lot, especially like hormones, right? Bioidentical hormones can be artificially made, of course. And the natural hormones we use aren't necessarily better. I mean, we can, you know, we probably have a bunch of endocrinologists listening to this. We can sit and argue and debate about desiccated porcine thyroid, that's by no means bioidentical to human thyroid hormone, but some people like it and they, some people desire it just because it's natural. And I I try to say, well, that's okay. That's fine. But natural doesn't necessarily mean it's better. There are lots of natural things that are not so good Mm -hmm. for you. Whereas artificial things might be. And kind of going back to everything else, as far as like toxins and all this stuff, I mean, that's why they studied them to make sure that they're not like egregiously toxic. I mean, there are lots of people who drink alcohol, which we have very clear data that that's a toxin. And there's all sorts of other toxins. And then they go, oh, God, I'm not going to touch an artificial sweetener, but they're sitting there drinking their alcohol. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, you know, we got to come at this pragmatically. And I think, you know, my bottom lines are the pragmatic considerations. Energy balance matters. The overall dietary quality matters. So in the context, if we're improving people's whole food intake, reducing their processed food, more veggies, legumes, fruit, leaner proteins, good fat from nuts, seeds, and fish, that kind of Mediterranean pattern. If they're drinking sugary drinks, we got to get rid of it. If we can replace it with water, unsweetened tea and coffee, awesome. We're on the same page. If they want some sweetened drink, I say replace them with the artificially sweetened beverages, individualize it, listen to patients, and we're all probably going to end up being on the, the relatively similar pages in that regard. Are you interested in learning about inhaled insulin as an option for your patients? To find out more about a Frezza insulin human inhalation powder, talk to a live mankind representative, download useful resources, and watch videos about a Frezza. Full prescribing information for Frezza, including box warning, medication guide, and instructions for use, is available on www.afreza.com and by calling 1-844-323-7399. Thanks. We're going to wrap up in the next few minutes, but I want to end with a patient. So I'm going to describe a patient to both of you and I want you to, as the doctor, give them advice. And so if you can give me your plea to them in five to six sentences. So this is a patient who's 50 years old, wants to lose 10 pounds. Their BMI is 28. They're still drinking two or three Diet Cokes a day. What do you tell them? So I'll start with Dr. Chris Fides. I want to lose weight, doc, but I want to still drink my Diet Coke. Help me. 
Well, that is literally, I think, every consult that I get at this point in my practice. So I completely, that's great. That's a great point of conversation. And, and if it's only 10 pounds, that would be amazing. Most people come in wanting to lose half their body weight, right? So let's talk about that. My first question is always, why are you drinking these drinks? You know, realistically, we have not touched on any of the elements of habit and desire and patterns of behavior that people engage in. So my first question is going to be, why are you drinking these? What do they give you? What are you using them for? Are you using them for caffeine? Are you using the fizzy carbonation as a satiety maker? You know, like, cause it just distends your stomach and it causes you to feel full. So you're using it as a satiety clue. Are you doing it in place of food? My, that's my first question. And honestly, if they tell me that they are not going to give up their artificially sweetened beverages as part of the conversation, do you know my next step would be to probably put them on a time-restricted feeding schedule first? Because the data on time-restricted feeding is pretty phenomenal and also really good at teaching people better habits before we start changing their entire lifestyle. Because the person in front of me, that patient, is doing things out of habit and doing things because it's giving them some sort of emotional, psychological pleasure. And until I can figure out what that is to alter their lifestyle to a more pleasurable, healthier lifestyle, I need to figure out how to break those habits. And I'm going to ask them to go down to one a day from three a day. And I'm going to ask them to try to find another beverage that suits them as well. And maybe put them on a time-restricted feeding schedule to try to break them of that habit of what they're doing with their artificially sweetened beverages later in the day. Thanks. Carl, what's your advice? Yeah, not so far off, but I would go through, which I do with everybody, right? We go through dietary recall, have them do a diet log and see where else in their diet they are struggling with. And then as far as, since we're talking about the diet Cokes, is there any chance that they are sort of leading that person to consume more later, like Dr. Crisfidi said earlier. Again, most of the time that doesn't seem to be the case. And I think if we go through their usual diet using a diet log, we're going to find other areas of the diet to reduce the energy intake, exchange it for more nutrient-dense, low-energy foods. And yeah, we can do intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding. Those are just tools to use they don't have to be mutually exclusive from any other dietary changes. And the data just show that they, they change the energy balance and they're kind of the same, but they're just tools. So all the different tools we have in our toolbox for helping change the dietary efforts. And then if they have any adiposity-based disease like prediabetes, hypertension, et cetera, and they struggle to adhere to the dietary efforts to lose weight. Well, we have obesity pharmacology to work on that too, if, if necessary. So yeah, just going back and personalizing their diet and medical regimen. Well, thank you both for this amazing podcast. I think in the end, we have a lot more in common than a disagreement, but I think that the topic is so fascinating and I really want to encourage the audience to take a look at these articles. Uh, I think there's really going to be a lot more in the next few years about this uh, topic, as many of many patients are on these artificial sweeteners, and hopefully we'll learn a little bit more. So thank you so much for joining us, and I hope the audience enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you, everyone. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Good seeing you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.